there is an easy-to-spot difference between optimists and pessimists. The first easy-to-spot difference is that every pessimist will tell you, I'm not a pessimist, I am a realist. To which I respond, no, you're just really negative and try to make excuses for it because optimists are always cooler. I am a through-and-through optimist. I just always believe that, that the situation can get better, that people will do better. I, it's, it's, it's actually painful to be an optimist at times because you'll get let down on occasion. But um, never have I seen the, the more stark difference between optimists and pessimists than I do with my wife, Whitney, who you got to see in the video. You may not have noticed this in the video, but we filmed that video. Um, you know if you have toddlers, it's hard to corral toddlers. And so Cohen was already asleep, and Abel was actually in the shower. And so you might have heard <laughs> there were three different songs being sung in the background of that video at different times by a toddler in the shower. But the highlight for me is he takes toys in there with him because why not? And one of the toys was doing like the evil bad guy laugh there at the end. I don't know if you heard the whoa from a four-year-old or not, but what's funny is like, so we watched the video and Whitney goes, we need to redo it. She said, everyone's going to hear it and it's going to be terrible because Whitney's the pessimist. But as the optimist, I said, Nobody will hear it or notice it, and it'll just be fun to talk about anyway. And so, so there's always this difference between an optimist and a pessimist, and it, it's okay if you're a pessimist. There's hope for you. <laughs> that was no good. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to take out your cell phone if you're not already out with it playing Candy Crush or whatever game you like. Take out your cell phone and go to www.highlandccky.org slash vote. And there on highlandccky.org slash vote, you're going to push the red button that says vote now, and it's going to take you to a website where we're going to ask you, are you a pessimist or an optimist? And I'm genuinely curious, it's not working. This is, this is the worst thing that ever could have happened. Um, so just go to the next slide. We're going to do this the old-fashioned way. I never anticipated that. There it goes. Okay, so the question we're going to ask first is how would you describe other people how would you describe the people you know? Go to highlandccky.org slash vote and vote if you think most people are optimists or pessimists. Is it working on your phones? Must not be because none of you are voting. This is going really poorly. There we go. Somebody voted. Hooray. All right, so we're going we're gonna to ask you this question because I'm, I'm curious as to whether you think most people you know are optimists or realists. Take about 20 seconds and go vote. Go. All right, the next thing we're going to do while this is going on is we're going to launch it back to the other question, which is how would you describe yourself as an optimist or a pessimist? If you haven't voted yet, go to highlandccky.org vote and tell me whether you think you're an optimist or a pessimist. All right, so here's what's interesting. This happened in first service too, and this is really interesting to me. About ha more than half of you describe yourself as optimists. But I'm not sure y'all are aware of what it means to be an optimist. Because something like 70% of you said that the rest of the world is pessimists. 
you can't believe the best in everyone and think they're all pessimists all the time, okay? So, so here's the thing, right? Like, I told you I'm an optimist, and, and it, at times it's, it's great, but there's times where it's, it's like a curse, because, because things, bad things happen because bad things work out because good things don't happen the way you thought they would. But, but there's always, in my opinion, a reason for hope. I'm an optimist because I refuse to believe that things are never going to get better. And, and I, I think that that comes from uh, uh, my lifetime of following Jesus. And, and I want you to know that it's not because Jesus has always made my life roses and and. and and bunny rabbits or whatever, but I, I think that at its core, people who follow Jesus have no choice but to be an optimist. And, and don't, don't get me wrong, I firmly believe that whether you're a positive person or a negative person is a choice. And I know that there are people who have been burned and people who have been let down, but, but I'm here to tell you that there is, there is hope, and that there is always hope in being an optimist, an understanding that things can and will get better. Today we wrap up our series at the movies, and, and when we wrap up at the movies, we're talking about one of my all-time favorite movies, probably like top five for me, but it's the movie The Shawshank Redemption. If you're my age or older, you have no doubt at least once seen it on cable because TNT airs this movie like every other week. And um, it's such a good movie. It's one of those movies like if you're scrolling channels and it's on, you'll probably stop and watch part of it. It's on Netflix right now, um, which has been the theme this whole time. I will warn you, um, I watched it on Netflix for one of the first times because I usually just watch it on TNT. Uh, there's a lot of bad words in it. Um, so... I warned you. That's all I can say about that. But, um, but the thing about Shawshank Redemption is it's the perfect story of hope. It's the story of this guy, Tim Robbins, plays this character named Andy Dufresne, who finds his wife cheating on him. And in the last seconds, rather than shoot them both, he walks away and decides to not, to not kill them. But someone else comes in and kills his wife. And so Andy Dufresne is then tried and, and convicted of murder and sent up to a place called the Shawshank State Prison. And it's there at Shawshank State Prison that Andy meets this other character who's important in the story. His name is Red. And Red is played by Morgan Freeman. And, and Red, as, as a guy who, who portrays Morgan Freeman, is the counter-opposite of Andy. Andy is innocent, and Andy has hope that someday he'll get out of prison. Red is guilty. Red admits that he killed the people he's, convict, he's, he's accused of killing, and that it doesn't matter, he's going to be stuck in that prison forever. And so the two kind of become this clash between each other of these two very different characters. Andy, the entire story of the movie, has hope. You see, the secret, and I'm going to reveal the ending before you see it, but it's 20-something years old, so you lose. Um, but Andy knows the whole time, almost immediately after he moves in, that he has a plan to escape from prison. And so Andy knows the entirety of the movie. Andy knows that he's about to break out any minute now. It takes a long time. It takes a, there's a lot of things that happen in the meantime. But Andy never lets go of that hope because Andy knows he's going to break out. Meanwhile, Red knows that he's convicted, knows that he's guilty, and doesn't think he has a shot. In fact, one of the ways they tell time throughout the, his, throughout the movie is that Red goes to the probation board or parole board every 10 years. 
And so three different times we see Red before the parole board and his parole gets denied to kind of mark time for how long it takes. And it shows the difference in the hope that Andy has, knowing that he has a plan to escape and knowing that Red, his only plan, the parole board, doesn't seem to work out. But there's this one scene that I think is really convicting when it comes to the difference between hope and hopeless. And I want you to check it out. Andy and Red are talking after Andy has been uh, spent two months in isolation for playing um, an opera, or opera, I almost said disc, it's a record, sorry, um, playing an opera record over the PA system and playing music for the, whole, for the whole prison, Andy then gets sent to isolation for two months, and this is the first scene after he comes back out of isolation. It's such a, a crucial line. And it looks at him, and with all the conviction he can muster, he says, hope is a dangerous thing. And for Red, it is, because in Red's mind, there's not a chance, there's not a, there's not a moment, there's not ever going to be an opportunity where he escapes. He is stuck Forever. And so to hold on to a hope like Andy has is, is, it would just crush you, but Andy knows something different. But I think there are people who would tell you that in 2018 that hope is a dangerous thing. And I, I think you know people like that. You may even be a person like that. Right? Every time you turn on the news, you're reminded that hope is a dangerous thing. Every time you get on social media, every, every time you talk to somebody, every time you see the world around you, you kind of maybe have this feeling in the pit of your stomach that maybe hope is a dangerous thing. But every time something bad happens, every time it seems like the world is falling apart, every time the negativity crushes your soul, you're reminded, this is why I don't hope for anything. And if you're, if you're honest with yourself, you might even say that you feel a little bit like Red in this story, that you're stuck in prison for life. And this is where you are, and this is who you are, and you just have to kind of grind it out, and there's not really any hope. But friends, I, I as a follower of Jesus, and we as a church of people who follow Jesus, have to believe differently. 
You see, we don't believe that this is it. We don't believe that this world is a prison that we're stuck in and that's the end of it, that we just die someday. We believe and we have hope because there is something beyond this world. We have hope because there is a God who created the universe and who in the midst of creating that universe created a place that he calls heaven that one day you and I will get to spend eternity if we follow him. We believe in hope because we believe in heaven. One of our jobs as people who follow Jesus is to be the kind of people who actually try to bring heaven to earth. It's one of the things that Jesus commanded. It's one of the things that Jesus taught us to do. But as the people who are the followers of Jesus, it's our job to bring heaven to earth, to bring the place that we are promised, to bring the place where there is only good, to bring the place where there is no sorrow, where there is no pain. We are responsible for bringing bits of heaven to earth. Why do we have hope? Because there are moments and there are times when heaven comes to earth. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in The Problem of Pain. He says, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of next, uh, most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. C.S. Lewis wrote The Problem of Pain in the early 1900s, 1920s. And a hundred years later, it is more true than ever that the biggest problem with Christians may be that we have given up hope. Maybe that because we're so busy focused on this world, maybe that we're so busy focused on these things, what happens is that we don't have the hope that is an anchor for our soul. We don't have that hope that Jesus has done and will do something different for us. And it may be because we've so allowed the bad things to outweigh the promise that God made for us of heaven that we don't have hope anymore. One of the places that I think you can find the most hope is in, um, in the Bible. It's in the book of Revelation. If you want to open your Bible there, or you want to get out your phone and open up your Bible app there, it's easy if you just grab the Bible in front of you in the pew. But what you do is you take the back cover, you open the back cover, turn a couple of pages, and you'll end up in Revelation chapter 21. It's where we're going to be. We actually, as a church, don't spend very much time talking about the book of Revelation it's because um, there are a lot of churches who do. There are a lot of churches who camp out in the book of Revelation all the time, and they talk all the time about it. And we don't for a, a couple of reasons. Number one is because a lot of other people do. Number two is because it's a very complex book. And it's a very complicated book to understand. And so what happens is people get bogged down in the minutiae and the little bitty details of Revelation and trying to decide what it means. Meanwhile, if you flip forward a few more pages, there's these things called the Gospels, the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's the, book, there's the books that Paul wrote, like Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, all of those books that make it very clear and very, and very easy to understand how we're supposed to live. So what people do is they'll get bogged down in the little bitty details of trying to figure out Revelation, and they'll just pass up all of the ways that Jesus and Paul and other people instruct us to live. 
And so we don't want to do that. We want to be the kind of people who live the way Jesus wants us to live. But, but for today, I, I think it's important for us to check out Revelation. Revelation is the book, and it was written by a guy named John. John followed Jesus for a long time. This is written, though, towards the end of John's life. They try to kill John several times um, in, in the Roman Empire, and they fail. Eventually, John get, just gets exiled to this island called Patmos. And it's there at Patmos that God gives John a vision. He grants him this dream to see what God wants him to see to write in the book of Revelation. And this is, I think, one of the big problems with Revelation is that what John sees goes far beyond words that we have. Now, John's writing this in the original Greek, but the Greek language nor the English language nor any language in between had enough words for John to describe the beauty of what he saw. And so that's part of the reason I think that, that we struggle to break down Revelation is because it really is the kind of book that's on a level we can't comprehend because John couldn't very well put into words what he was thinking. But I think there's this little snippet in chapter 21 that makes it clear for us all we need to know about heaven. John says this in chapter 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And the description we see right off is we see that John is saying, listen, all you need to know is that heaven and the new heaven and the new earth are a beautiful place. He said it's more beautiful than you could even think. He said it's more beautiful than a bride on her wedding day. Heaven and earth is the kind of place that I can't even describe. The new heaven and the new earth is unlike anything we've ever seen. And so when, when Jesus talks about bringing heaven to earth, what he's talking about is bringing beauty, is bringing goodness. When Jesus talks about bringing heaven to earth, he's talking about bringing hope to a world that is hopeless. When I tell you this next thing that you want to understand, I'm either going to come off as the biggest dork you know or just really lame, one of the two, either one's fine. I have a secret obsession with um, rap and R&B. Um, most people don't want their preacher to listen to rap. I don't care. But I, I love R&B. I love rap. I will talk to you about it some other time. This is not it. But currently, one of my favorite new songs is this song that I can't really recommend because there's bad words in it um, called God's Plan by this dude named Drake. Maybe you know him better as a UK fan than actually a musician. That's fine too. But Drake made this song called God's Plan. And the story behind this this Drake's story is really interesting. They wanted to make a music video for the, for the song, God's Plan, and the, the production studio budgeted $1 million for Drake to make this video. Well, they made a decision in the last couple of weeks that instead of just, you know, spending it on whatever a rap video would normally spend their, their money on, that they would take the million dollars, turn it into cash, and just drive through the city of Miami, Florida, and give it away to people. There's this scene in the video where he steps up in the middle of this dinky little grocery store and he says, hey, for the next 30 minutes, put anything you want in your cart, we're buying it. 
There's families just sitting on a park bench, just minding their own business, and then Drake pops up, and he gives them just wads of cash, and their tears flowing down their face. And, and, and there's this scene where he gives this girl a $50,000 scholarship to the University of Miami, and it's this really cool video. Other people watched it in my office, and tears were in their eyes. I, I don't know what happened there, but um, always chopping onions in the office. It's real weird, but... But it's this really cool video. So I watched it a couple of times, and I'm like, man, this is cool. This is, this is the kind of stuff that brings heaven to earth. But did you know, this is, this is why the world is such a weird place. There are people who vocally criticize the video. And there are people who don't like it, and there are people who are against it and, and protesting and whatever. But what's crazy to me is that all Drake's trying to do in this video, I never thought I would defend Drake on stage in a sermon, but here it goes, is trying to bring a little heaven to earth. And this is, this is our job. This is, this is what we're called to do. This, this is hope, is finding ways to bring heaven to earth. I want you to point out, I want to point out something to you that you may have noticed in verse 1, but it's important to understand. When John is describing heaven, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, if you're a beach vacation kind of person, that really changes your description of heaven. <laughs> like, wait a second, there's no beach in heaven? Because for some of you, let's, let's be clear, some of you still think of heaven as like floating on clouds playing harps um, and like chubby little angels. That's not really what heaven looks like. Heaven is a new earth and a new heaven with, with no pain, no, no, no struggle. And it's perfectly described for the people who were originally intended to read John's description. The people who were intended to read John's description are people in the first century in, in, in Greece and Asia and over in those sorts of places. And for them, the sea or the ocean was not a place of vacation. Most of them were fishermen. And so when they see that the, there is no sea, their immediate thought is, there's no work. In heaven, there's... There's no struggle. Because the other thing that you thought of when you thought of the sea was that you thought of it's the place where the bad weather comes through, right? Because the storms would have started out there and moved in. The other thing you think of when you think of the sea in the first century is you think of struggle because it's a, a way that people were, were transporting things, but it was a difficult way to transport things. And so for us, we think of the sea as rest and vacation, but for the people reading this originally, their thoughts all went negative, and so when John says it's the place with no sea, they go, I can live that kind of place. So if John was describing it to me, he'd say, it's a place where Chipotle is zero calories. And it's the place where Pasquale's is gluten-free. Like, what more could you ask for? But this is what heaven is. Heaven is a place of, of hope. Heaven is a place of beauty. And check out what he says in verse 3. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And if your view of God is skewed, the thought of being near God might seem frightening to you. If you've always thought of God as the, the angry guy waiting to strike you with a lightning bolt, this isn't a comforting verse. But if you know of God as the loving, compassionate Father who is chasing after you and who desperately wants to white, white wrap his arms around you, then you know that this is good. 
you know that in the garden when Adam and Eve are there and they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil that God has to cast them out, not because he's mad at them, but because he is so good that he can't allow evil around him, that he can't let bad things happen near him because he is so good. And so the presence of God is such a good thing that the new heavens and the new earth are filled with it. This is why we have hope. We have hope because John promises us that he will wipe every tear from their eyes and that there will be no more death or mourning, no crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Think about the last time that you were sad. Think about the last time that you shed tears. Think about the last time that you were upset. And imagine with me that there is a time where there are no more tears. There is a time where there is no more grief. There is a time where there is no more pain. This is the promise of heaven. You see, we miss out when we think all it is is floating on clouds and playing harps. Heaven is the place of ultimate goodness. It's the place of reunions. It's the place of joy. It's the place where the people who could never walk can run. It's the place where the, everything that mattered to us on earth matters not because life is so good in heaven. A couple years ago at Easter, we, we talked about that verse and it said, He will wipe every tear from your eye. And there's something that's always stuck with me from that verse. The word, that, the word that John uses in the Greek for wipe every tear is, is a word called exeliefo. And I, I don't expect you to learn Greek. I actually just barely know enough Greek to pretend like I know it. But the thing that's important about this word is that most of the time in, in ancient Greek when they used the word exeliefo, they used it to describe um, a stonemason. And a stonemason who would lay the, the mortar down to then put a stone on. And what he would do is he would exeliefo the, the mortar, and he would remove the smudges, and he would make it perfect. And he would just take his thumb or his index finger, and he would just take it and just smooth it over. And so when John uses this word that God is going to wipe every tear from our eye, what's happening in this, in this word picture that he's painting is that God the Creator has wrapped his arms around you, and he takes his thumbs and he wipes the tears from your eyes with his very thumb. And that the creator of the universe, the maker of all things good, comes to you and he says, I will wipe every tear because there is no mourning here. There is no grief here. This is a picture of heaven on earth as the God, the creator of the universe, wrapping his arms around his people. This week in Parkland, Florida, Someone brought a gun to the school and created chaos. They're not sure how it happened. They think maybe he did it, but at some point the fire alarm got pulled, and so students started filing out into the hallway. And while students were filing out in the hallway, as word was getting around, there's also a shooter in the building. People started rushing back into classrooms. And so in the midst of all this chaos, there, there, are, there are heroes there are heroes like Aaron Feist, the football coach, also security guard, who stood in front of and took bullets for multiple students. There are heroes like Melissa Falkowski. Melissa Falkowski is a teacher at the high school, and she had originally started filing kids out into the hallway for the fire drill, but then she got word that there was a gunman in the building, and she got as many students as she could, as quickly as she could, into her classroom. 
She then took took 19 students and stuffed all of them into a closet with her. And I want you to imagine this with me. I want you to imagine that there is a gunman in the building and you're in a closet with 19 high school students who all they know is someone is in the building shooting. But all 19 students, to a T, described that Melissa was the calming presence, that they were frantic and they were a mess, but Melissa was the one who was telling them, no, it's okay. It's going to be okay. And she saved all 19 of their lives by holding them in the closet and by keeping them there so that no one could see them until they were sure that a SWAT team could secure the building and get them out. Heaven on earth is looking at teenagers in the midst of chaos and saying, no, no, we believe everything's going to be okay. We're going to be just fine. That's the power of hope. It's the power of knowing in the midst of a situation like what happened in Parkland, Florida this week, that it's not the end. That there is something greater, there is something more, there is something further beyond where we are right now. That there is a promise of heaven. In verse 5, John says, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You see, that's what the problem is with the world. Is that the, the things that we have are broken. The lives that we live are old and destroyed. But in the new heaven, in the new earth, God the creator is making all things new. The moths, the, the rust, the thieves, that all of the damage, that all of the things and all of the hurt and all of the pain and every darkness part of our lives, God saying, no, see, I am in heaven making all things new. In a place where there's no more grief, in a place where there's no more pain, in a place where everything is being restored. I want to be, be frank with you. We believe that one of the reasons that heaven is such a good place is because there's an alternative. Now hear me out when I say this, and I want to make sure that we say this carefully. We believe that it is God's desire for every person to go to heaven. But we also believe that God desires that people choose to go to heaven. And so in order for them to choose, God had to create an alternative, and he cast the angel Satan to hell. And it's there in hell where if heaven is the absence of everything bad, hell is the absence of everything good. And I wish we didn't have to talk about it, but we do. Because the hope of heaven is that all pain, all death, all destruction has been cast there. And so God makes heaven and earth new for those who follow him. And the hope is for those who believe in him. You see, the reason that we have hope is because God sent his son, Jesus, to earth. 
And it's there when he sent his son Jesus to earth that Jesus paid the ultimate price for you and for me. The reason we have hope isn't because we're a good person. The reason we have hope isn't because we've done enough good deeds. It's not because of any reason other than this one. The reason we have hope is because of Jesus. One of the most memorable scenes in Shawshank Redemption is when Andy finally tunnel, finishes tunneling through the hole in the wall of his cell. And the end of his tunnel leads to a, a room that has sewer pipes. And he busts through the sewer pipes and Red describes it as cli- cli- crawling through 500 yards of the foulest smelling s- stuff you've ever smelled. And so Andy climbs, crawls through the sewer, and he makes it out through the other side, and there's this moment where he stands up in in this little creek, and he stands up, and he raises his arms in triumph above his head, and you look behind him, and behind him, by about 500 yards, is the Shawshank State Prison, and Andy's on the other side. Andy's made it out. This is what Jesus does for us. Jesus is the one who came and who died and who who went to the place where death is. And he's the one who climbed through the 500 yards of the foulest smelling stuff you've ever seen so that you and I could have hope. He's the one who went to the place where there is no, no goodness. He's the one who went to the place where there is no joy, where there is no love. He's the one who went to the place where there is only death. And he came out on the other side so that you and I could have hope. Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. And he tells his disciples that he's going there. He says, listen, I want you to take a moment and to to eat the bread and remember my, my body broken for you. To drink the cup and remember my blood poured out for you. And he says, it's in this moment It's in this time, it's in this opportunity that you remember hope. 